The Single Tracks Podcast is brought to you by TPC, the pros closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade, and TPC has an industry-leading selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes, plus frames, wheels, and accessories. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced, and every bike includes 30-day returns. Visit tpc.bike forward slash singletracks and enter code singletracks40 to save $40 on every order over 200 That's the pros closet at tpc.bike slash singletracks and look for the link and coupon code in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Matt Miller. Matt is the inventor and founder of Brake Ace, a sensor that collects data about your braking and he's also got an app that makes braking recommendations to help you ride smarter. Matt is a former elite level mountain bike racer and he's also coached riders at all levels of the sport. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Good to be here with you. So to be Thanks for coming. So to be clear, you're not the Matt Miller that works for single tracks. You're a different Matt Miller. <laughs> no. Oh, oh man. It's like the most common name in the world. It is. I wish I could go back in time and tell my parents that everyone's <laughs> going to have this name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've known a lot of Matt Millers in my life. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Same. There's a lot of us like all around the world. Well, tell us, tell us about you, Matt Miller. Give us a little bit about uh, your background as a rider and and how you made your way up to the elite level of racing. Well, I grew up in the family bike shop here in little town of Nazareth, PA, which I just so happen to be in right now. And my grandfather started the bike shop back in the 70s. My dad bought it off him. And then I was working there from the time I'm, I was 10. So I have wow. like these vivid memories of being a 10-year-old kid getting paid like $2 an hour, basically you know, <laughs> slave labor and, uh, you know, trying to center U brakes on BMX bikes as a 10 year old and, you know, putting them together and even selling bikes. Cool. So I didn't actually start riding until I was like 14, but we lived pretty close to some trails like a mile mm-hmm. away. Yeah. And that was maybe 2000. I got my first like proper mountain bike where I could, would go out alone and uh, those kind of things disc brakes yeah. had just come out and yeah. uh yeah so that you know that would give me a lot of freedom and i was basically the only kid in the family that rode at a certain point even though i have lots of siblings and we all worked at the bike shop right but um i got really into it really into it and i started racing probably oh three did lots of xc racing in the mid-atlantic okay. super series and i got pretty good pretty quick and um i did lots of 24-hour racing I was telling you off the air how uh, you're pretty close to one of the tracks that I raced in Conyers, Georgia. Yeah. And that's where they had 24-hour worlds. Brutal course. Yeah, man. That thing was bumpy. And like we all had like 26-inch wheels and like 80 mils of travel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was brutal. That was the year Craig Gordon got like real sick and he won. Mm-hmm. And I passed him. He was like just cramped up on the side of the trail. He had obviously laughed at me like multiple times before I passed him, <laughs> but yeah, I got, I got at the, after that point, I got really into like power meters. So someone had given me a power meter and I used it on my road bike and no one was using it on mountain bikes at the time, but I was, I had, you know, started studying exercise physiology at the university and I just got really into it. So I was like, surely huh. something is good about these for mountain biking. Everyone's like, yeah. nah, 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 you can't use it. 
But, uh, you know, the technology got better. And by mm-hmm. 2012, Quark had come out with their mountain bike power meter. So mm-hmm. I got one of those. And I, for my basically a capstone project at the university, I did the first study on functional threshold power, FTP, and how it relates to mountain biking. Wow. So that got me really interested in research. And along the lines somewhere there, I started coaching lots of like really good riders. I don't know. I got mm-hmm. just really lucky. I coached guys like Jeff Lenoski when he was like, he started his XC stint. Oh, wow. And uh, Seamus Powell, who then went on to win five uh, national championships. Mm-hmm. And we were using power meters all along there. Cool. And as luck would have it, I wanted to continue doing research in mountain biking. And I ended up getting a position. You know, I sent out emails to basically everyone that did research in mountain biking. And I got a position at a university in New Zealand. Mm. So in 2014, packed the few things <laughs> up that I had, a bunch of bikes, and I moved to New Zealand. And basically, that's where I live now. I just never left. Wow, that's really cool. So what was it about like mountain biking and power that people thought, like, this, this won't work or you can't do it? I mean, was it like the sensors themselves or was it like, the sport because power is really weird in mountain biking. Like you, you're not putting out constant power by any means. It's not like road biking. So was it, was it like the technology or was it just the idea of like how you mountain bike wasn't really compatible? Yeah. I think like basically just everyone's understanding of power was just not like power meters had only really just come out. Like maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, at least widespread, maybe five or 10 years before that, where people started at power meters on their road bikes. Mm -hmm. And then people started also having a racing power meter yeah, because they were so heavy. And then, so the information started to grow and I was just kind of there when we're like, actually, you know what? Mountain bike power meters are pretty useful if we look at the data in a different way. Mm -hmm. So it was just about kind of looking at it in a different way and understanding the demands. But mountain biking is pretty unique because we spend so much time coasting. Mm -hmm. So, or, you know, going downhill where Right. As we found out, like you shouldn't be pedaling anyway (laughs) because it's just a waste of energy. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was just a basically the knowledge base since that would have been, you know, 2010 or whatever. The knowledge base is just has grown exponentially since then. We have sensors all over our bikes now Mm -hmm. and we know so much more. So there are a lot of mountain bikers that have power meters. Anyone who basically wants to get fitter has a power meter on their mountain bike. And they're, yeah. they're growing every year, which is, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So was that insight that you had that like mountain bikers spend a lot of time coasting? Is that what got you interested in looking at, at braking? Like how you could measure that? Yeah. Yeah. That was exactly it. I was, I was actually like, I had this weird obsession with pacing because I understood so much about physiology and how the body mm-hmm. works that, and I obviously spent a lot of time mountain biking well, you get tired really quick and you get tired, you know, cause you have to sprint and you have to do it a lot of times right. and it, you could go slightly easier, let's say, and be able to sustain yourself for longer. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, okay. Pacing's pretty interesting. So I guess the idea for studying braking came from two things. We looked at a pacing study during my mm-hmm. PhD where we saw that coasting down this hill was no faster than if you pedaled. And actually you saved a ton of energy if you didn't pedal. So that was actually probably a good way to do it. Yeah. And then we were trying to do some other things just with power meters in an XC race. 
and we saw that, or I, I found myself racing against this really fast roadie. He was just breaking in every turn. I was like, I know this guy's way fitter than me. And uh, it was my supervisor and he had been a professional road racer and he was just breaking in every turn. I could hear his brakes and yeah. I was riding with him. I was like, there's no way I should be able to keep up with this guy because he's crazy fit, except the mm-hmm. fact that I'm not breaking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I told them on Monday after that race, I was like, Hey, I want to look at breaking. Do you think we could build a sensor? Yeah. And yeah, we, we built this monstrosity of a sensor and the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the guys who used to write for us, Jero, he talked about braking in terms of like it's kind of like a reverse accelerator, especially when you're talking about like gravity riding, where basically when you let off the brakes, that's when you speed up, and then you know obviously they slow you down. And so that's interesting that you come at it from that perspective of like how can braking make you faster and and make you faster without a lot of additional effort. Yeah, it's free speed. It's absolutely just free speed. And, you know, Jero was onto it because where you break and how you break makes all the difference on a downhill. Mm, yeah. Because you're not pedaling, right? It's just you and gravity and the bike, and it's up to you to pilot it. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's what we're going to be getting into a little bit later on in this conversation. Tell us about brake ace the sensor that you designed what does the sensor look like and how does it work yeah well i can show you jeff but everyone else is gonna have to google it but this is our (laughs) our new wireless sensor that we've been working on for an incredibly long time so uh, if i could explain how it looks it just basically looks like a spacer that goes under your brake caliper right just like you would need to use if you wanted to use a bigger rotor Mm -hmm. so it looks like that but obviously it looks like there's a little extra something something going on inside Mm -hmm. and that stuff that's going on inside is basically a power meter so there's a power meter in there that's Mm -hmm. wireless and sends all the braking information to your phone okay cool and so it's what is it actually measuring or i mean you say it's a power meter what is it looking at is it looking at like is it optically looking at the the pads brake pads like retracting and compressing or is it is it looking at something else yeah good question so it what it's looking at is it's looking at the flex inside of that sensor so the sensor is designed in such a way that when you brake it senses the movement of your brake caliper kind of towards the frame or towards your fork okay you can't feel it or anything but it's designed that if we place a strain gauge in a specific area, mm-hmm. that we can pick up that information. And when you brake really hard and you slow down a lot, we, we know the difference. It's very, very sensitive. I can put it in my hand and I can squeeze it in my hand and you can pick up little tiny differences. And it's mm-hmm. just in the direction of the braking. So those little strain gauges, they're crazy little things. They're super sensitive. They're, the wires are basically like copper hair. Mm-hmm. And we have to, to solder them onto the module that then mm-hmm. uh, collects that information. So, yeah, it, it's it's a pretty neat thing. We tried different ways of looking at braking because there's lots of ways that you could probably do it. And mm-hmm. we settled on measuring power because, well, that's what you do when you're measuring your pedaling. It's all about energy. Mm-hmm. So when we think about a moving bike, what the moving bike has is energy. Mm-hmm. And we either give it more or we take it away. So we need to be able to look at that very, very wide range of measurements because it's from Mm -hmm. really, really tiny braking uh, events to like these massive ones when we're blasting down a hill. Yeah. So 
it's a nice little, we call it hypersensitive, hypersensitive to your braking. Yeah. So uh, it makes sense that it is similar to a power meter because I think a lot of us are familiar with the like crank arm power meters, right? Where that's, it's the same idea where it's measuring the strain, how much the crank arms actually flex when you're pedaling. Yeah. And the, the electronics in there are actually from a power meter that is on the market. Okay. So they're very, very smart and proven electronics, which we're super stoked about. Yeah. And so is this all like sort of self-contained or do you have to calibrate it based on different frames and forks based on the way you're measuring it? Yeah, there are some. Generally, what we do is we calibrate it in the factory and that information is then stored in the sensor and stored on our servers. Okay. Uh, but what you can do is if you make like a huge change in your setup, like you add like wacky amount of spacers or you go up to like, yeah, basically that's the only the main thing that you can do. You can recalibrate it or you're like, hey, I'm not sure if the data is right. You can recalibrate it and we have a calibration sequence that you can follow that goes to our servers as well. Okay, cool. So how difficult has this sort of journey been developing this hardware for for measuring braking? Dude, it's been hard. <laughs> it's been hard. <laughs> You know, because it's it's a huge challenge, maybe not just so much in the hardware side, but like hardware is actually pretty straightforward. Hmm. Like if you make pedals, you got to make them strong, you got to make them light, and they fit in one way. Right. Like the biggest challenges someone has when they make pedals is making them be the coolest, (laughs) most like functional pedals that exist, right? Because lots of people make pedals. Yeah. But it's generally like proven like what you need to do Mm -hmm. so we have that challenge like making it coolest and the best but also we need it to to flex in a specific area and you can't be able to feel it like it can't actually move right right so that's a huge challenge and as we discovered along this journey what should fit as a spacer on every bike doesn't actually fit on every bike (laughs) but this is like a standard industry challenge right yeah well, that part isn't going to fit on every bike. Right. So, you know, there's 160 post mount, 180 post mount, 200 post mount. Well, we need two different sensors to be able to adapt to use with your your bigger rotor. Mm. So for us, that was the main hardware challenge, which fortunately we were able to solve. But actually, like the hardest part of what we've done is the software and the firmware side is rewriting all those electronics because not only do we have a hardware product, but it's a hardware product that functions like a phone in a way, like it has the (laughs) the smarts inside of it and needs to also talk to your phone. So that's taken a long time. And then we also go beyond that because we don't just want to give you data. We want to give you something to do, right? We want to work basically like the shock quiz. That was, that was our inspiration. Mm. We want to give you like, this is your action point for your ride. This is where you can improve. Yeah. So the hardware challenge was maybe our easiest one. It's pretty expensive, as anyone knows who makes hardware or designs hardware and prototypes things and makes sure they work properly. But mm-hmm. then we have the software and firmware side as well. So she's been a journey. <laughs> yeah, lots of moving parts, clearly. So you probably weren't the first to look at breaking data, but maybe you're looking at it more in depth than others have before. But like, what's what's different about your approach? How did you figure out which metrics you wanted to focus on? Did that come from like your racing background or was it more just looking at the data and being like, huh, there's some interesting things going on here? Yeah, that that's a good question. 
There was like, I know back in the day, there was some exploration into breaking data. And what most, like it was mostly teams on the World Cup trying to use these data loggers, which we see, Mm. we see the mechanics using them and we see the teams using them at the highest level during practice, right? So they plug in the wires into the data logger and they collect a lot of information. Yeah. And this information is also used when during bike development and things like that. Mm What most historically, what everyone was looking at was brake pressure. And it basically, you would look at how the fluid pressure changes when you squeeze the lever. Okay. So that was the traditional way, but the, the ability to be able to quantify and put that information into context is really difficult mm. because you can't actually see the interaction of the wheel with the ground at resolute enough when you're using pressure, you basically just see the squeeziness of your wheel. Okay. So basically you, you could see pressure, brake pressure increase when you're in the air. Mm-hmm. And that then doesn't really mean much to us. Whereas if you use basically like a torque sensor or power meter, mm-hmm. you can see, well, eventually the wheel's going to stop because, well, now the torque is, there's no torque. Yeah. Right. So we, we can, we can pick up those really fine interactions and this opens up the door for us to be able to measure things like modulation. So, mm-hmm. These scores and these metrics and numbers that we created, we had to create them from the ground up because they didn't exist, or at least these weren't published anywhere where we could find them. Yeah. So we started, and this was, it was basically right place at the right time for me. I had this opportunity where it was my, I guess basically my job was to lecture on sports science, but mm-hmm. I was doing my PhD as well. So I spent the rest of the time in my office looking at data, hmm. right? So we were able to just, and when you, when you go through a research program, like a PhD, everyone's looking at your data and looking at what you're saying about your data and be like, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. <laughs> so you really need yeah. to make sure it's right. Yeah. So what we did is we went to like, look, we're going to go straight to the source. We want to know torque. We want to know power. We want to know the energy that's lost. We need to build this sensing element that picks up the torque so we can get power. So, so that's what we did. And, uh, we had to create these new metrics basically on the fly, right? Because what a power meter does is it says, this is how hard you pedaled. Actually, that's great for someone like me, where I, it's my thing that I love to do is help athletes get faster and fitter and look at their power data. I've looked at a zillion power meter files. I can say, look, all right, this is your average here. This is your average here. Let's try this. See if you can get faster. Hmm. But we wanted, since we wanted to take the shock whiz approach, we needed to make it easy for anyone to understand so that someone without a PhD in braking could look at their own braking and be like, all right, I know what to do. I'm going to go try this. So we created, for example, modulation. Now, I don't know how everyone else defines it, but what we needed to do was we needed to be able to calculate it. Mm-hmm. Because I hear it all the time when we look at bike tests or brake tests, like, well, these brakes, the modulation isn't as good, or mm-hmm. the modulation on these is way better. So we had to create a way that, okay, what what is it actually doing that this means modulation or modulation is occurring? Yeah. So we created that. And for example, in brake ace, every time you brake, it shows your level of modulation. Huh. Okay. So that's just one of the scores. That we have, and then we have things like intensity of your braking, the duration of your braking. And then I guess what I call it is the one score to rule them all, which is the flow score. 
which mm-hmm. means that we can pit ourselves against each other on a downhill and we can just yeah. look at this flow score and determine who buys beers at the end of the ride. <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying too is, is this isn't just measuring your braking. The sensor is also able to tell what your wheel is doing. Is that correct? Like it can tell if you're locking up the wheel versus letting it spin, but slowing down. Is that, is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, definitely. Looking at the, how the uh, skidding, we've done that. And uh, that one's, there's some real challenges on that to be able to have sensors fast enough to, to pick that up. So mm-hmm. we're, we're continuing to work on that. We found ways to solve that cool. and we published those findings. So skidding, we look at skidding and we also mm-hmm. look at uh, basically everything else. So like, let's say you're going down a downhill and it's a chunky downhill and you're flying and you need to be on your brakes, off your brakes, on your brakes, off the brakes. But that's like a little tiny movement, right? With our fingers. We never actually let off. Mm-hmm. We never actually let off our brakes completely. And this is why they get so hot. But we're on harder, on less, on harder, on less. And we can actually look at what the wheel's doing during that time. Because if you say you roll over a log or something like that, mm-hmm. well, it might just kind of slide across that log, right? Mm-hmm. Your wheel might yeah. slide across that log. And then it, it kind of locks up again or something like that after yeah. you're on the other side of the log where there's good traction. Mm-hmm. So what, what our sensor is able to do is it's able to understand what's happening there. And that could happen even if you just keep your, your lever pressure the same the whole time. That interaction with the ground is really what we're looking at. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Cause yeah, I mean, it would seem like, oh, that's the, the easiest thing would be just have a sensor at the lever, right? And you can just measure like, did you push it down far or not far? But yeah, it's clearly much more complicated. The interaction between like, you're braking and then what that actually results in like at the wheel and, and at the ground. So definitely a, a complex problem. Yeah. And it's also complicated by the heat because that is the brake system's job mm-hmm. is to basically convert your speed, if you will, to heat. Mm. Right? Yeah. So it clamps on the rotor and it's creates, it turns that energy into heat. It goes into your rotor. This is why the rotors get so hot. Mm-hmm. All your speed becomes heat. So once you have that heat in the system, you need to be actually be able to measure what the wheel's doing. Otherwise, you know how brakes fade, right? Right. I was just out riding this morning before we got on and my rear brake faded. Mm. I was like, what the heck? This isn't even a long downhill. <laughs> and, you know, you got to let off the lever and then like, oh, quickly grab it again because you need to slow down. Yeah. And they used to be a lot worse back in the day. I'll tell you that. When I was in <laughs> Conyers, Georgia, and with whatever brakes I was using then and... uh <laughs> You get arm pump because you're squeezing them. The next thing you know, they're in the bars. Yeah. So you got to let them off. Brakes have come a long way, actually. <laughs> but looking at that interaction with the ground is number one. So that's what we do. Yeah. 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 That's cool, too. I, see, I hadn't heard that explanation about sort of the job of brakes, converting all that energy into heat. I mean, that's it. That's That's all it can do. So it's a really good way to look at it. All right, let's talk about some common breaking questions. And you've answered a lot of these on your podcast, uh, your website, your social media. Like, it's really awesome to to follow all of that stuff and to to learn from all the things that you're learning. So, for the sake of our listeners, first question I want to ask is: Does the front brake generally offer more stopping power than the rear? I've heard that a lot. That especially when you're going downhill. Um, more of your weight is on the front of the bike. And so the front brake 
tends to do more of the breaking. Is that, is that true? Like, w- does the data support that? And, and like, what does that, what does that kind of mean for us? Yeah. So th- I'd say the answer is yes. And mostly no. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, cause this is the way bikes are sold is we buy a new bike and it has a bigger front rotor. Yeah. So like, well, it has a bigger front rotor because most of the braking or the front brakes more powerful generally is what uh, we're told. Right. Or you want more power. Is it? Yeah. Who knows what it is? Yep. Well, we've, we've looked at this a lot and one of the metrics that we have and you know, this one, I think we're going to explore until the end of time. Brake balance is what, that's what we call it. Brake balance. We're going to explore it forever because what I can do is I can take two riders down the same track and I look at, look at their braking, look at it in brake ace and it pits them against each other. So I can look at their scores. And they could maybe have, you know, one guy might have 10% in the front mm-hmm. and 90% in the rear. Whoa. Right. And the best I've ever seen is 50-50. Wow. Right. So 50% front, 50% rear. I've never seen higher percentage in the front. Yeah. But we then, if we look like, if we explore it even further, we need to look at like, what are we actually doing when that braking happens? Like, what are we trying to do? Like, if you want to stop the front brake is the best way to do that. Yeah. Hands down, hands down. Like you could almost exclusively use the front brake to stop Mm -hmm. if you do it the right way. Like we don't want anybody flipping over the bars, right? Yeah. Well, that's a common misconception or not a misconception, but I I mean, that's the thing I've heard the most is new riders. It's like, they always get that advice. That's the first Mm -hmm. thing people say is like, don't grab that front brake. And so as riders, I think, some of us, we, we're afraid of it, right? Like we really tend to like back brake first and then maybe a little bit of front. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I could talk about this one for days. Let me, I'll, I'll, uh, I definitely want to talk about beginners, but, uh, the first thing I think is like when you're stopping, yeah, hundred percent, like you need that front brake. But mm-hmm. when we're going down a hill, we're not stopping. Yeah. Right. We're riding. <laughs> so Mostly what we're doing is we're, we're using the rear brake just to kind of check up our speed. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going too fast. I need to slow down a little bit. I don't want to stop. Yeah. But I'm going to use my rear brake for that. Mm-hmm. So that's what we see. And most people, obviously, it depends on like what the trail looks like. So here in Nazareth, PA, the trails are generally not that steep. So I'm much closer to 50-50 with my braking. Where mm-hmm. when I slow down, it's to get around this really tight hairpin turn with a tree on the inside. Mm-hmm. So I need to slow down a lot. Yeah. So I'm going to dump a lot of front brake and I'm going to slow down a lot and get around that. But when I'm back in Rotorua, the trails are steep. Yeah. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And they're freaking fast. So mostly what I'm doing is I'm like 80% on the rear brake, just trying to make sure I don't go faster and get in over my head. Mm. So it definitely changes where you are and what you're trying to do. And then if I get to another hairpin turn, it's mostly front brake. Hmm. So what you said about what we're told when we first start riding, especially with disc brakes where, you know, they can stop on a dime. Yeah. Beginners are told lay off the front brake. (laughs) And that's not great advice when you do want to stop. Yeah. Because, and beginners, like if you get to a sketchy section, you're going to stop, right? Right. Like right. this part's too sketchy. I'm going to get off and walk. Yeah. That's sweet because this is, this is part of the development as mountain bikers is, you know, I'm going to walk this one, check it out the other side. Maybe I'll try it. Yeah. But if you try and stop with just the rear brake, you're just going to skid, mm-hmm. lose control, have to put a foot down. You're going to end up going sideways and you crash. Yeah. 
So this like ability to manipulate which brake you're using varies widely across different levels of riders. Mm, and one thing that we need to do is we need to be confident at using the front brake and realize that it's an important tool in our tool chest of, of a rider. Mm-hmm. So, but obviously not when we're going crazy fast and we want to slow down mm. because traction is also important. Yeah. And we don't want to start skidding with the front wheel because that then we'll also end up in trouble. Yeah. Interesting. Well, when you say that you've seen some riders that are doing like 90, 10, where like 90% of the braking is the rear and 10 is the front. Does that mean like they're on the brakes that amount or like that they're getting that amount of stopping power, right? Like, like what I'm thinking is a little bit of front brake goes a long way, especially if you're going downhill, right? So it's what, like, what are those percentages really, really talking about? Oh, that's a good question. So what we're actually looking at is energy Okay. at that point. So when we're looking at balance, we're looking at that heat, that heat that goes in. Mm. And you can think of it like a banana, right? So if you're burning up like a whole banana on the rear brake, just by converting your speed into heat, mm-hmm. you might do 10% of a banana okay. on the front brake. So you're just kind of not using it as much. And we can also look at the amount of time that you use it and what the actual power is when you use that brake. And also modulation between each brake. Yeah. So you might modulate the front more, right? When you're going down a steep chute yeah. or something like that or, and drag the rear. It's more even. Okay. So yeah, you're talking about the amount of energy that is dissipated at that brake. That's, that's helpful. Okay. So let's talk about skidding. So I've also heard that locking up a wheel and skidding is bad in terms of speed or performance. Um, but I've also heard that like, it's good and it definitely looks cool. Uh, not good for trails. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pros and cons, but yeah, yeah, let's talk about skidding. Like is skidding good? The, the pros and the really fast riders that you've looked at, are they skidding a lot? Are they locking up their wheels or do they try to avoid that? Yep. So I guess the saying is skids are for squids, right? Mm. Skidding, <laughs> it depends who you ask. Like, if you ask a trail builder what they think about skidding, like, yeah. no, don't skid They're because like, it destroys yeah. our trails, right? Right. You create a yep. big rut and you, you chuck dirt everywhere. And, you know, personally for me, I think the same thing when I see someone destroy a berm, right? You mm-hmm. yeah. smash into a berm and you throw dust everywhere. It looks great on Instagram, but it's not great for your speed and it's right. not great for the trail. So yes, uh, maybe don't do that so much. <laughs> but skidding is like, skidding's not fast because the you're slowing down, right? Mm-hmm. You're converting more of your energy like into sound and like throwing dust in the air, right? And, you know, also heat, but it's not great for your tires. But what the risk is with skidding is that you aren't able to change direction in the way that you expect. Okay. Because a lot of different things can happen underneath your tires when they start sliding mm-hmm. and you are really lacking control. Mm. What also happens eventually in a skid is when you eventually do lose speed and you're still skidding, you lose a lot more speed. Mm. So generally, if you say, consider you're racing or you're going for a Strava segment or just trying to beat your buddies down the hill, uh, skidding is you're going to have to do a lot of work to then gain that speed back up. Mm. so i am definitely not a big fan of skidding (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um just for for a lot of reasons but um i would say it's also not fast so if you look at what 
the at the highest level at the World Cup, and then like uh, a beginner or so, or some or me, right? I might skid, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. I'm a bit of a squid or something like that. <laughs> uh, but what look Bruni does when he wins the World Championships is he's taking a swoopy turn around this berm, and he's really high up there. It's not sharp edges. If you look at the trace of where he's going, it's real smooth around there. Yeah. And to be able to do that, you need to have the appropriate speed when you get into that turn so you don't have to have these square edge turns. Right. So skidding, you end up doing a square edge, right? Your rear tire slides. It's not in a very nice arc. And then you're at a weird angle compared to where you were before. So mm-hmm. generally, it's it's not that great. You know, some people have perfected it, but there's better ways. Yeah. So this, I think kind of leads into my next question. And this is one of those things that, that I've seen from your research and and what you've been talking about and that's cornering. So it sounds like one of the things you found is that some of the the best, most effective riders are going to break just before a turn, if I'm correct. Right. And for me that I associate that with skidding because I, I'm going to, if I'm doing it late, like it's too late and I'm like really grabbing onto it. So how do you optimize that? Like, how do you know where the right place is to break before a turn? Yeah. I think what we need to, everyone needs to be on the same pages is, is like, what is, what does before the turn mean? Right. Right. Because someone might look at a turn and be like, before the turn is the middle of the turn. Or someone else might say, uh, yeah. before the turn is before my bike starts to lean at all. For example, if uh, if we take a downhiller, they take late braking to the next level, right? This is what mm. pros are doing differently. They're braking at the last minute possible. And what ends up happening is what we can do to get like very precise location. And even if you're like, mm, I'm not sure about GPS and s- as far as precision, mm-hmm. you know, you can only take GPS so far, like even though we... Even if we use like a crazy high-speed GPS, someone would be like, I don't believe it, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're all used to seeing crazy GPS numbers. So what we can do is, all right, sweet, export the data from Braycase and sync it up with your GoPro. Okay. And if you sync it up with your GoPro, you can see exactly where you were in the turn when you were on which brake. Yeah. So that's pretty sweet because then we can... We can look at, uh, you know, you versus Loic Bruni, mm-hmm. for example, and we can see like where you start breaking and where he starts breaking. So what top riders do at certain times is they're breaking like right at the apex, mm. right at the apex. And what that means is all the time before that, they were able to ride without breaking, mm-hmm. which means they were going really fast. Yeah. So when we think about breaking early and breaking before a turn, it, what that means is actually we slowed down a lot before the turn and then had to somehow get through it and hold on and hope that we didn't need to break again. Yeah. And it's really scary to be able to do that, to be able to then to slow down, be like, yep, this is the speed that I need. Slow down enough and then get off them. Now you're looking through the berm and you, you get through it without dabbing the brakes again. Yeah. So that late braking strategy, just they take it to the next level, obviously. And that means that we have maximum speed before we start braking. Yeah. And then they're off the brakes. Interesting. So, yeah. I mean, you say, you say most of them are braking like as close as possible to the apex. So yeah, again, what is that point in a turn? Like if we're looking at a, I don't know, 90 degree kind of 
sperm? Like where, where is that exactly? That's a good question. We had to like be able to define that actually in our software. Right. Like what, what is an apex? Yeah. So we can identify that then in, in the plot. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically what we do is we find the center of the turn and we make that your apex. So not the center of the turn, the center of the path that you took. So what is your apex? Right. Because someone might go, you know, way outside early in a turn and then cut inside or inside and then outside. So what was the sharpest part of your turn and how did your breaking relate to that? So the best riders might have, uh, you know, their apex, their turn might be super wide and super smooth. Just like when you're going around, the, you know, on the highway and you're riding real smooth and you're like, yep, I like this line. <laughs> Whereas, you know, someone like me, maybe a bit more squiddy will, uh, you know, have a sharp apex and, you know, I'm not sure where it would relate to them, but it varies wildly based on turns. But, you know, the great thing is like now we can quantify that, right? We can quantify like, what is what was my breaking compared to Locke Bruni, and why is he so much faster? And how can I be more like him? <laughs> right. So okay. So we we're breaking. We're at the apex of the turn. That's when ideally you're going to be breaking. Right. Is is at the apex. And then how long are you holding on? Like, is this just like a tap? Does that depend on sort of your your skill level, or is there like an optimal way to sort of let off the brakes once you're within a turn? Yeah, I think so. I think maybe I should preface this saying that I'm not uh, like a qualified skills coach. And I think skills coaches are extremely good at communicating this part Hmm. where like when you should let off the brakes and how you should do it. And generally what they, what skills coaches teach is that you should kind of ease off the brakes, ease off the brakes, because especially if we're just getting started riding our ability to change speed extremely quickly, we're just not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. So if we can change speed gradually and gradually slow down the time that we change our speed or gradually mm-hmm. shorten that time that we slow down, uh, then we can kind of on our journey to improvement. So mm-hmm. maybe a beginner might slow down uh, earlier and break harder as they go and then let off their brakes as they go through and pass that apex, just because we're still exploring how much speed we actually need for this turn. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so is, is break ace like within the app, are you getting those kinds of, of tips and feedback? Like if I went through a turn, would it tell me afterward, like, Hey, you're breaking too soon or, or you're let not letting off your brakes quick enough. Like, is that, uh, is it at sort of that level? That's definitely where it's going. So we've explored that, uh, by being able to say like where your apex is, how you were breaking before it, how you're breaking, uh, after it. So we have ways to quantify that. We've kind of kept that on beta and we're using that internally in the software. Mm-hmm. And that's, ex- that's really where we want to go. Like we want it to be in a way your skills coach, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's video tutorials that look at what you did with your breaks. Hey, all right, this is what you did. Now try this. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing at the moment, what we do is we basically, we, it's called key opportunities. And instead it looks at mm-hmm. all the places that you break that might be 90 times. And it gives you three places to go to improve. And these are your three okay. key opportunities and shows you what you did in that time. Mm. And in the future roadmap, if I look at the future of break ace, the plan is to then be able to implement like, actually, this is your tip. Like this is, this is what you should do. And here's someone showing you what to try because we know actually a lot about the trail. We know the gradient, we know your speed, we know what you're doing. And alongside that, obviously you can 
send your key opportunities to your skills coach and maybe even like a video of yourself going through that section and your skills coach can now coach you remotely. Mm, yeah. Right? They're like, right. Just hey, like try power. this at home. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Like power, you know, cause they're, when I was coaching athletes and I still do this uh, just cause I love it, coaching athletes, fitness, most of them I never met, right. They're on the other side yeah. of the world. And I, if I look at their information from their rod, it almost feels like I was there with them. Mm. Like I can understand their pedaling. I can see what their heart rate did. I can see all these things. So that's really where we want to go is we want to go towards like a remote skills coaching kind of thing. Yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah. So I know you said you're not a skills coach, but I'm still going to ask you skills questions. Okay. And, go, uh, go for it. Yeah. And, and this will all be, you know, again, like, yeah, I'm glad you, you said that, but also, you know, again, this approach is different, right? It's a data driven approach versus the way that a lot of even the current pros learned, right? Like I imagine a lot of them, it was trial and error or maybe they just naturally like understood the physics of, of breaking and, and turns and all that stuff. And so, I mean, one of the questions I have after looking at all this data from, you know, pro riders to, to weekend warriors, like how do the pros compare to, to regular riders in terms of their breaking skills? Like, can you look at the data from one rider and another and be like, Oh, that guy's a pro. That person is not like, is it, is it kind of obvious what they're doing differently? Yeah, it's definitely night and day in terms of where they're breaking and their overall breaking is hugely different. For example, with mm. Sam Blankensop, spent some time looking at his breaking and then I rode the trails after and, you know, my, I was way, 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 way off. Like they were his home <laughs> trails and it was just not even comparable. And, you know, we had GoPro stuff, GoPro videos from all that stuff. So I was able to do is look at what he was doing, go back and be like, how the heck did he do that? Mm. You know, but what, what he has in his skills tool chest is skills that allow him to not actually need to break. Mm -hmm. Right. And it might be like a ability to move the bike and it might be ability to turn and look through the turn and be able to predict what his traction is. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a, a difficult, this is, it's an important thing to say that we're not saying don't break, right? Because we never want to say that because you just end up going to end up getting hurt because he was, he would still break, mm -hmm. just be like, not a lot because what he's doing is maybe like turning the bike in the air and getting around this turn in a way that I never even thought about. Yeah. You know, like maybe picking up the rear end, which is a skill that I don't actually have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or using the trail to slow you down. Like you're saying, like, yeah, absolutely. You know, kind of pushing into a berm more or yeah. Kind of using the terrain. Yeah. Yeah. So what we can do is like, if we look at me versus him. It's like, well, you know, if I want to ride that fast, I'm going to have to go to this turn and try new things until I could get around it with a, a braking profile that's closer, you know, or a flow score that's closer yeah. to what his braking is. And for me, I don't know, it might not ever be possible, but what I can do is now that I can see what I've done, that gives me like a carrot, right? Where I'm like, well, this is, this is the bar. How close can I get to that bar? Mm -hmm. And let me explore new things to try to get to that bar. Yeah. Interesting. That brings up a, another question. Do you see a difference between someone who's riding like say enduro style, um, which is often a lot of times it's, it's on site, meaning like you haven't ridden that trail a lot, 
or maybe you've never even seen it versus someone who is like in a downhill competition where they're very familiar with the track. They know exactly where to break, when, how much, how, how does that look? Does it look like, like the enduro style? Is it super jagged compared to somebody who's riding downhill or, or are there some similarities there? Yeah. I mean, first off, like racing full stop is totally different, mm. totally different than riding. And we, we, I, the, what we see is that once someone starts racing, now you're under pressure. Mm-hmm. You're like, I got to get it right. Got to get it right. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, there's overbreaking happening compared to the way you just rode it like huh. half an hour ago, yeah. which is crazy because, you know, what we also find is like, once we're under pressure and we're like, I'm going for the Strava segment or, or I want to win this race mm-hmm. is like, then we're, we're thinking about all these things. Yeah. Whereas when we're just riding, we might be able to find flow and, you know, finding the flow state is like optimal. And that's when you, you are actually probably breaking closer to the way you break when you just ride. Yeah. Generally in racing, like we might push harder or pedal harder in certain sections so we can sometimes mm-hmm. go faster. But even for myself, when I race on my local trails, I overbreak compared to <laughs> the way I braked in practice. And I can see that difference just real quickly at a glance. You looking at the flow score, I get to the bottom, yeah. like, oh my God, my flow score was garbage. And huh. so we definitely see that in racing. And, you know, I think it's really what uh, the best part about brake is it's tiny and it fits on your bike and you can race with it. You don't have a zillion wires. It's waterproof too. So you can then compare your racing to your training. But then when we look at, let's say enduro or downhill and we look at practice versus our different practice runs mm-hmm. as we start to learn the track better we're start to we're able to identify like where we don't need to break as much yeah and we have this metric that we use in break ace called a break check mm-hmm. a break check and it's generally like a pretty light event mm-hmm. and we all do it yeah it's like you're riding down the hill like whoop <laughs> you just grab the brakes for a short moment of time yeah it doesn't really do anything but usually it, it indicates that you're not sure what's coming up. So you're like, yo, well, I'm going to check up on my brakes. Yeah. And uh, just to make sure I don't go too fast. Oh, man, that didn't do anything. Yeah. Right. So when we do like maybe the first practice run, we might have like 25 brake checks. Mm. Every time it's slowing you down a little, a little. But yeah. it also indicates that overthinking part or maybe not uh, understanding the trail enough. Yeah. And you get better and you get fewer brake checks, fewer brake checks as you go. And if you do it right, you get to the race run and you have no brake checks, right? Because yeah. you're focused and you know what's happening, just like you might understand in a downhill race. Right. Uh, if you, let's say, maybe pedal too much and get too tired, you're going to have more brake checks than you did in the first <laughs> run. And that's yeah. why you might go slower. But, you know, the best downhillers, for example, are the ones that are able to eliminate those brake checks and they're sure of their braking points. Mm-hmm just like the best enduro racers are the ones who are able to predict and remember what's going to happen on the trail with really limited understanding of that. Yeah. So maybe whether it's sight lines or under reading the terrain to know actually what is after this corner mm-hmm. and in sport, like any sport, if we look at the research in any sport, that ability to predict what's going to happen before it happens is what separates the best from the second best. Yeah. Like, a, you know, even considering like a soccer ball, like uh, the best soccer players are the ones that are able to know where that soccer ball is going to go before the kicker even kicks it. Right. 
Yeah, the visualization. Because they've seen so many and they can predict. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah. And that's the same for mountain bikers is we're able to be like, you know, I've seen a turn like this before. I've seen a line before a turn just like this before. I know mm -hmm. which direction that turn goes. So that means I know which line to be on now. So that learning is is very important. And we can see that then in braking. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. It sounds like next you need like some kind of like brain monitor, like a neural <laughs> net where you can be like, oh, are you in the flow state or not? And like, yeah, because it definitely that's, that's fascinating that it affects your braking so much in a competition versus just being out for a ride. So you talked a little bit about brake modulation and how that even that term is like kind of difficult to define and, and everybody has a different idea about what that means. But mountain bikers seem to be kind of split between preferring brakes that modulate their power nicely and those that have like a really quick bite. And I'm not going to name any brand names because I don't even know if that's a real thing either. Like people <laughs> say, oh, these brakes, they, they tend to bite faster and these modulate. I don't even know if that's true, but is one of those better than the other in terms of performance? Like it, if, if you were to design the ideal brake, like would it be one, um, that has that like really quick power versus one that, that you can kind of modulate for lack of a better word? Yeah, Jeff, that's a good question because I, I think about this a lot and I think about like, okay, how can I take two brakes and like, like test them, actually test them against each other? So it's not like my, my feelings and like, you know, the <laughs> yeah. color shirt I was like my favorite color on the day or like what I'm thinking about for dinner. Yeah. It's really hard to do because you would need to know like how hard someone's squeezing and then, then look at the interaction of the wheel with the ground, right? That resultant wheel, that resultant torque, that resultant power. And you would need actually a lot of sensors to be able to do that. So we, we were like, oh, forget it. We're, we'll save that test for a little bit later once we have like, once we add the pressure sensors back on and look at them all together, we got a bit distracted trying to make a hardware product. <laughs> so which took a lot of thought. So what I like is generally I like the grabbiest brake possible. Hmm. So the only the way we do it now is like the parking lot test. Like, all right, let me go test this bike. I'm going to spin around in the parking lot going really, really slow, like way below the speed that I'll be riding. And we're like, oh, holy cow, these are grippy. <laughs> and someone might be like, nah. I don't want those brakes. Mm, yeah. But well, you only just tried them on in the parking lot. Why don't you get it out to the trail and see what they do? Yeah. Uh, whereas the other brake might not grab as fast and you might be like, yeah, that's the one I want on a trail. Yeah. Well, maybe it'd be better to get it out on the trail straight away and, and try that. Yeah. What I like is the grabbiest brake possible. I like those organic pads that bed in fast. They wear out really quickly. You know, they only last a few months and I'm happy to replace them because they work bloody good. Yeah. So, uh, because like what you want is you want your brakes to be there when you want your brakes. Mm -hmm. right. So if you're going quick down a trail, like you don't want to have to grab more brake than you expect or, mm. you know, need more brake when you don't have it. Yeah. So I want to break this right there, right away because I can modulate it. You know, once I get into like a steep shoot and I need to change and manipulate how my tires working with the ground, I can do that mm -hmm. whether yeah. I have a gravity brake or not. Right. But what I can't change is if that brakes there right when I need it. Mm. So that's why I gen generally lean towards brakes that are pretty grabby. 
Yeah. And I imagine the pros do too. I mean, that's again, like that's what they want is those like quick hits. It sounds like versus I'll admit I drag my brakes probably way more than I should. And, and part of that's because I can, like if I have one that I feel like modulates really well, then yeah, I feel like I'm doing something. I'm like, oh, I've got it at just the perfect point. But like, yeah, really you, you once you improve your skills to the level where you can sort of use them the way they're intended to be used. Yeah. It makes sense that you would want that quicker, quicker bite. Yeah. And, and on this, I think it's really important to like always make sure your stuff's clean. Mm. Like those brake pads and brake rotors get dirty really quick and also bed them in properly. Mm-hmm. Like, so this is like, you know, tip the Holy grail of tips for having good brakes is like bed those things in mm. properly. Yeah. So follow the procedure that the manufacturer sends you to bed them in. Mm-hmm. We've actually been working on like, uh, like what does it actually look like when you bed your brakes in? Mm-hmm. Like, can we develop a part of the brake ASAP yeah. that says, you know, that would be you know you, you're not bedded in properly yet. Actually, we can do that if we know enough about the, the materials that are being used. So yeah, we've been exploring that and most people don't bed their brakes in properly. Mm. And then we, we can actually see that, like how the brake's performing once it is bed improperly. Mm, you know, you yeah. get less noise and they just work better. And then they need to be cleaned pretty regularly. So I, I'm obviously obsessed with brakes. So I clean mine like pretty, pretty often, change the pads pretty often and just make sure everything's there. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. I you definitely something that I don't do and. Yeah. I mean, as mountain bikers, we just figure like, whoa, I'm about to go ride on the trail. They're going to get bedded in. Like I'm going to, I'll break a little extra the first couple of turns, but yeah. Dude, it's like, it's crazy because I can look, I can see the difference whether I bed my brakes in on a bumpy road versus a flat or like a smooth road. Huh. And you almost get like these way, you know, I don't know if you've ever driven a car that has like worn out I guess it's, they just say worn out brakes. It's usually like yeah. a, a wavy like a, rotor. Yeah. So, and what happens is the, the pads are grabbing more at different times as the rotor spins through. Mm. And if I bed my brakes in, in a kind of a wavy road that yeah. only gets worse over time. Right. So, and you can feel it then when you go down a smooth road, cause you're like, Oh, what the heck is happening with my brakes? Huh. There's all these, these pulses pretty much. So if, if they're bed in properly, we can avoid a lot of that. And that just makes them last longer and work better. So interesting. I think you just solved one of my problems. I I had this. Jero and I talked about this back and forth for a while. I I was telling him my brakes are always squeaky. Like they're squeakier than anybody else's. They're always making some noise. Not like a rubbing noise. Like just whenever I you know tap them a little, they're like make a, a squealing noise. And I was like, it doesn't matter what bike I'm on. Like you know, I've tried all kinds of different brakes and. He and I went through a whole bunch of things, but I think, I think you may have hit it. Like, I think it's, I probably didn't bet them in properly. Yeah. Never, try it. Yeah. Never do. Try it. Well, you know, I think if, if it's been on a few bikes, right. Or you've had those for a while, you're probably due for rotors. And I think this is something that we don't do enough is change our rotors. We change our pads, but also rotors wear out pretty quickly and like surprisingly quickly, like almost like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. But, um, you know, if we're racing in the world cup, we might do two rotors in a weekend, right? Oh, geez. But for us, that's not, 
maybe we could do two <laughs> rotors in a year, right? Because yeah. what happens is like that pad's constantly rubbing on the brake rotor and it's just mm-hmm. creating this smooth surface is putting dirt in it's putting like maybe inconsistencies in there grooves yeah. mm-hmm. and then when we change the pads things get funky right mm-hmm. maybe squeaky so generally i recommend that we change our rotors and we change our pads i don't know what the brake manufacturers say i don't make brakes but it, it's noticeably better when we change those things and i just change i have to change them all the time on my bikes because i'm constantly changing setups that that's how I notice. I'm like, wow, man, new rotors make a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you, how do people know? Is there a rule of thumb? Like every two times you change your pads or, or can you measure it with a caliper? Like what's the best way to know when it's time to change those rotors? I do not know. I don't know the answer to that one actually, hmm. but right. yeah, I'm going to investigate hmm. that because yeah, that's a good question. And I, you got me there too. I probably haven't replaced my rotors in a long time. So let's talk about rotors. So bigger rotors obviously are going to offer better stopping power. So why, why don't bikes max them out? Like, why don't we just have 200s or 213s or whatever, like front and rear, and let's just have the most braking power we can. Yeah. I love that. I even made a t-shirt one time that said ride bigger rotors because <laughs> bigger rotors are, bigger rotors are awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> bigger, um, I, I really love them. I think there is a misconception that they provide more power. What they gen- what they actually do is they just make it easier. You don't have to squeeze as hard to get the power that you want. Mm, yeah. Right. So you have a greater Better mechanical leverage. advantage. But, yep. Yep. So since the rotor's job is to accept all this heat, and you know if we go bigger, it makes it easier for us. Yeah. Well, bigger is just better. Mm-hmm. up to a certain point right yeah so i i like them for that reason because you know i can dump all the heat into there mm-hmm. and it saves my my pads from getting hot my brake calipers can, from getting hot and hopefully my brakes don't fade as much yeah so that's that's a good thing that's a good thing because the caliper doesn't can't accept a ton of heat mm-hmm. uh, and once it does get hot well then the next thing you know it's in your fluid so you don't want right. that. So right. if you can get a bigger rotor that can accept a lot of heat and heat up very quickly, well, that's good. So generally, I I like to say, yep, get a bigger rotor. So I've tested rotors up to 246 mil. Mm. This is a big rotor. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> they look ridiculous. So they are so easy to use. You bear, You don't need to squeeze very hard and you're slowing down exactly how you want. Yeah. And that's great. The problem is they get so big that any little wave in the rotor down at oh. the, where you bolted them on gets pronounced mm-hmm. like exponentially uh, by the time yeah, it gets I to your see. caliper. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of like rubbing issues, which is annoying. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I kind of, so they made them thicker, right? So those really big rotors became thicker just to kind of try and solve some of those problems, but then they don't fit great in your calipers. Mm. And the problem with us mountain bikers is that we're really picky and we want everything to be light and also work really well. Yeah. Like a motorcycle, you don't have that problem. Like you're going to put a big rotor on there, right? Because you want it to stop and you don't care if you're Harley 700 pounds. (laughs) Right. But we want our mountain bikes to be like 25 pounds and go off 20 foot drops. Right. You know, the brakes are an easy place to like lighten it up. Mm-hmm. So basically where we're at at this point in mountain biking is 
Some people want bigger rotors, but there's not enough people that want bigger rotors to warrant having massive calipers that work really well with them. Mm-hmm. So the biggest size that works pretty good now is a size 220 and 223. Okay. So I, I know a lot of people that are using them and we had to actually develop a whole new geometry on brake ace, like a separate sensor to be able to work with that size. Yeah. Uh, which is sweet because I, they ride really nice. They're definitely worth trying. Mm-hmm. So one, someone said to me actually a long time ago that the biggest rotor you can have is the wheel. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. There's rim brakes too, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not ideal. Everyone knows how bad they are. And there were even these hydraulic rim brakes back in the day as well. And, you know, they were real stinkers. They didn't work great, but, <laughs> uh, you did, you know, you just can't get the, you can't grab onto them hard enough cause it is still the rim. So I'm not actually sure what it would look like with a gigantic disc the size of a wheel that had the same size <laughs> caliper but yeah i imagine it's a bit of a liability yeah that, that could get weird well that also <laughs> makes me makes uh, i remember seeing uh, a thing at interbike like years ago back when rim brakes were still sort of a thing uh that claimed to be like a, a anti-lock brake thing it had like some springs and some things that would kind of like pulse your brakes yeah well, so I am surprised that that hasn't really like translated to mountain biking. Like, does, does that make sense? Like, is it a, or is it just a ridiculous idea that, that, you know, in a car, like you're able to control your braking much better by having it like pulse or whatever. But like in mountain biking, we would never do that. Would we? I think we will. I did this thing on my Instagram. I did a poll and I said, because one of the companies released this ABS for e-bikes. Mm-hmm. I said, do you think ABS is the future of mountain biking? Mm-hmm. Like 95% of people said no. Yeah. But if you look at any other wheeled sport where you're trying to go fast, ABS is there, right? I guess maybe motocross, I'm not sure if it's actually there, but the very, like the terrain in mountain biking, mm-hmm. I think we need it. I yeah. like on both wheels. I think, I think it'll be there. Like the safety control and the speed in like motorcycle racing just exponentially increased as soon as bikes had abs Ah, interesting so i think we'll see it i think there will be some challenges just because like we're picky and we love lightweight things so abs really needs to get to the point where it doesn't weigh a ton and i'm not sure if it's really there yet but you know if you're racing downhill you should probably shouldn't care about weight anyway, right? Like it's probably a benefit to go to be heavier. You go faster. I think we'll see it. I think it would be awesome. I would love to ride one. And you know, I think I think we'll see prototypes sooner than everyone is ready for. Hmm. Yeah, but the, that's the problem is everyone needs to be ready for it, right? For it to be a product. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is I feel like the biggest, you know, I mean, obviously there are technological hurdles, but I feel like just as big is going to be a lot of people are going to say this, this feels like cheating, right? I mean, like your whole thing is about like, let's, you know, figure out how we can improve our skills and like become better riders through braking. And this feels like, you know, it's just cheating. It's a, it's a way to like not have those skills and, and instantly be better. And so, yeah, but I feel like our sport, we've, we've had a lot of things like that where, Initially, people are like, hey, it's not fair. We didn't have that. And 
Oh, yeah. You know, e-bikes are probably there now where like some people don't consider it a mountain bike. And maybe it depends on where you are. Because in Rotorua, I'll tell you, like 50% of the people there have mountain bikes and they are loving it. And the trails are no worse off. We get a lot of people riding there. And, you know, New Zealand in general, like we see a lot of e-bikes, a lot of e-bikes. It's pretty sick. So I think like, you know, it, it, it all goes in waves. Like, I don't know what, what was cheating before? Like, uh, maybe 29ers were seen as cheating. Yeah. Right. Maybe we're like, no way. 26 (laughs) is the only way 26 or die. But man, I would not go back to a 26 inch bike. They are sketchy. Right. So like not only did speeds increase, but also like we're, we feel safer. We probably are safer until we hit the deck, but, uh, it's overall like a better experience and it's easier to get into riding when some of those like extremely difficult things to do, like, you know, uh, slow down are when that they become easier for us. So ABS will do that. And I look forward to it. I, yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome outlook. Well, so yeah, I want to close by just asking you a little bit about Rotorua since you live there and you, you mentioned kind of the scene there. How has it changed or grown since you've, you've been there? I mean, all of a sudden it seems like it's kind of launched onto the world stage. Like what's, what's it like riding in Rotorua? Uh, well, I'll tell you like mountain biking is what took me there. So I moved there for a reason. It's because I live two minutes away from like literally a two minute bike ride from trails and I get on the trail network and it is expansive. Mm. Uh, I think one of the, like it's changed a lot. It was probably the first place I visited when I went to New Zealand. Like there were trails in the town that I lived in, uh, at first, which was Palmerston North. It was great. And that grew and grew and grew in mountain biking mm-hmm. and New Zealand in general, they just have like the government is paying to put in trails. Like mm-hmm. local wow. governments are building, building the trails and they're not cheap. Like it creates yeah. jobs. It creates, you know, jobs for trail builders it creates jobs for bike shops and it Mm -hmm. it's there's an insane amount of bike shops in rotorua and you know it's it's really easy access and that's one of the the great things about it is that you know town kind of surrounds this forest Mm -hmm. and you can ride from your house and next thing you know you're in trails yeah so i think when i first went there maybe in i guess 2014 would have been the first time i went there it was still growing Mm -hmm. like they had already had world champs there in 2006 okay so mountain biking was already like a thing there, yeah. but it just has grown and grown and grown and grown. And my neighbors ride, you would look at them. You wouldn't, wouldn't be like mountain biker, mountain biker. And maybe they don't identify as mountain biker, but they mountain bike. Yeah. So like the whole cul-de-sac mountain bikes and like the neighbors across the street mountain bike, you see them out on the trails and it's just become so normalized in New Zealand in general mm. where you know someone who is a mountain biker. Everyone knows someone who is a mountain biker. So the tendency then is for everyone to mountain bike, mm-hmm. right? Because you're like, well, Steve mountain bikes. So I'm going to go mountain bike with <laughs> yeah. Steve. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing how it's become like the thing to do mm. mountain biking families. And it, you know, what it does is it leads to like a really high level of rider because yeah. you increase the number of people that do it. Well, next thing you know, you have a lot of people that are really into it and really good at it. And we just had Jenna Hastings from Rotorua win the junior women's uh, downhill world champs just yeah. a few weeks ago. And she's yeah. 
she's young and she's been riding. She's been around mountain biking her whole life. Her whole family mountain bikes and her mm. neighbor's mountain bike, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a pretty cool place in that. And we can ride all year. And this, this, it's like perfect traction basically every day. So mm. yeah, it, it's pretty good. It's all volcanic soil. And I think that really helps because for a place to be a mountain bike destination, you need to be able to mountain bike yeah, all the time. And, right. you know, for someone that's really into it, like myself, and I deal with mountain bikers all the time, it's like, that's a pretty good place to go because, you know, if I need to do testing, I can go out. If I want to go for fun, I can go out. And it's all right there any day. Yeah, that's really cool. It's interesting because, you know, obviously being in the U.S. and, and seeing it, you know, it, it seems like a destination, right? It's like a tourist place. But it's cool to hear that, you know, the, the local community and like the people who live there are benefiting from it and are getting into it. And, you know, I mean, it sounds almost like, you know, some of the towns out West, Colorado, yeah, and, and yeah, Utah, definitely. where, where it's not just, I mean, yes, there's a ton of tourism and there's big races and events and people come in to do that stuff. But at the end of the day, like it, it is a community there and, and there's local riders and, friends and neighbors and people of all ages. And yeah, that's really special. That's awesome. Cool. Well, Matt, uh, thanks again for taking the time to chat with us. I learned a ton about breaking, um, and I'm really excited to see what else you're able to learn and, and how you're able to continue to develop the product. So yeah, keep us posted. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And if, um, you know, uh, we're going to be opening pre-orders like really soon for Breakcase. Obviously, we're delivering this first product to our Kickstarter backers very soon. I just got photos from the factory that our our uh, our metal pieces are on their way to us, and then we're going to put them together. Nice. It's like it's really exciting. And you know, if someone wants to learn about breaking, we wrote a book about breaking. It's called Free Speed, and that will be available on our website on Breakcase.com soon. So um, you know, people can join our email follow us on Instagram there and stay up to date on what's happening with break ace because we're, we're moving fast and we're making moves and you know, we've come a long way and we can't wait to show it to everybody. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. So yeah, breakace.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.